Welcome to The Hybrid Model, an education podcast. Author and teacher L.R. Nost argued when little people are overwhelmed by big emotions, it is our job as educators to share our calm, not to join their chaos. Last week, the Capitol exploded as hundreds of pro-Trump protesters sought to overturn the election. How do we, as teachers and citizens of this country, teach through this chaos? This week on The Hybrid Model, how to instruct through insurrection. Well, Jessica, uh, I had this whole like intro planned out, um, how we would uh, talk about how our break was and, you know, how we handle uh, coming back from the holiday break, but <laughs> quite literally in the middle of recording this yesterday, um, there was a coup and uh, we decided to put the episode on pause and uh, figure out what the hell is going on, man. So, And did you? Did yeah. you figure out what the hell is going on? Because I didn't. <laughs> no, no. Um, here's what I know. Uh, <laughs> there was about a, what, a four, five-hour pause um, in uh, the U.S. Capitol while, uh, while a bunch of QAnon, uh, MAGA hat, like... Uh, racist white folk. Uh, yep, there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there was not a lot of diversity uh, amongst the, you know, the the crew that was raiding the Capitol. But long story short, um, if you if you have lived under a rock and don't don't know, this will come out probably about a week after it happened. But like, I don't know. Were there were two or three thousand people that stormed the U.S. Capitol uh, doing the president's bidding. He asked them to do it. They broke into the Capitol, and. Um, Things looked incredibly dangerous. Four people died. Uh, what the actual heck, <laughs> right? Like, I I don't know how to make sense of it. I am really thankful we are recording this during our plan time before we see children. And I am so incredibly thankful to have you and to have this forum to kind of talk our way through how we're going to approach today. Yes. So... Um... <laughs> I am in a really unfortunate position because I don't have normal classes today. My students will be taking their state mandated end of course exam today. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around it just knowing that I'm going to walk into the classroom. My students are going to walk into the classroom. It's going to be me reading instructions word from word from a test manual while my students take this multiple choice test. It's comical in like a really sad way that this is this is what my students will be doing today. Um, oh. Number one, that we're still giving standardized tests in this pandemic, first of all. <laughs> and then number yeah. two, that my students are going to take it uh, after the insurrection at the Capitol yesterday. Like how, how do you... 
I don't even yeah. know. Where do you even go with that? I mean, are we going to look at those results and think that they count for something? That they matter? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they 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 mattered for very little before. Right. Now, now, like... This seems so uh, pointless. Right. Incredibly pointless. And I think really strikes to the heart of our complaint about standardized tests, which is, like... It always comes at the expense of what I would argue is, like, real education, which is, like, talking to our very real, very concerned students about what the hell happened, right? There is so much room for great civic engagement here, you know? And instead, it will be, like, do not move past the stop side at the bottom of page seven. <laughs> right. Ah, <And>, uh, <laughs> that just seems like like a scene out of freaking office space or something you know like uh uh that is very frustrating well how about you you do have normal classes tomorrow right yeah are we done with eocs or no no? this is day two or five so oh yes no so i actually will not after the eoc is done i will have one in-person class with each of my sets because we're on hybrid um, so mm-hmm. each of my groups of students, I will have one in-person class before the semester ends. So. Okay. Yikes. Well, yes. uh, when, when you finally do have students again and have the ability to, you know, engage with the subject matter, do you, do you have any plans? Are you, are you? Not yet. So I, this is, I think, hopefully on a lot of teachers' minds last night, is how do we approach this with our students? And one of the things I think that was really disheartening for me to see yesterday was a number of students, sorry, a number of teachers I follow on Twitter and in some of the teacher Facebook groups I'm in, continue to stick to this don't bring politics into the classroom mindset. And I, it's still so unbelievable to me that they can't see, hey, your choice to not talk about what happened at the Capitol yesterday is a political act. And it's so unbelievable to me that we still have teachers who say things like that, who do things like that, who won't provide a space for our students to have that civil discourse, like you said. So um, I was really angry about that last night and I really had to think about that, but then also, now that I kind of have this time where I'm not rushing to figure out what to do in less than, you know, 24 hours, um, I really do want to figure out what this looks like when I talk to my students about this. And at that point, hopefully we're, you know, a little bit further out and maybe they've had time to talk about it. But it it's hard because you have to, I mean, I have to brace myself, right? I have to brace myself yeah. for those students who are going to say, you know, this has nothing to do with Trump or these people aren't racist or um, this is not the same as the Black Lives Matter protests because they're not looting or whatever it is. I mean, you know, all of the excuses that we've all seen from people who just choose to deny what's actually happening. Um, So just bracing myself for that and the emotional turmoil that comes with that. Yeah. 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 So I don't think that you will get from from what I think you may encounter in the classroom, you're going to encounter all kinds of stuff. I'm going to encounter all kinds of stuff. But it seems like I, I watched way too much of the floor debate yesterday. <laughs> uh, like I stayed up way too late. That, that's kind of that's kind of my jam. So, but uh, you are already starting to see some members of Congress uh, 
try to turn the narrative and make the argument that they were not uh, supporters of Trump, but were rather Antifa leftists, right? Right. And I think that, to me, regardless of the pedagogical impact of everything, right, our our shared sense of facts is really, really, really important. And I noticed that there is a growing movement of people, and thus their children, because those people do have kids, that are in the classroom that just deny certain things about reality. Case in point, I first noticed um, my son was five when Sandy Hook happened, okay? And he was in a kindergarten class. I had a group of debate kids at Smithville High School. We were in a McDonald's eating our pre-tournament meal when I, I heard about everything that happened. And it it beyond broke my heart, you know? Like I, I weeped with children, uh, and I will tell you, they saved me that day because those high school kids gave me a hug and they were like, we love you. You know, they were wonderful. But I made my wife grab my kid from kindergarten and drag him up there so I could hug him. And on Monday, right, it was like, okay, we're going to talk about this thing. It's a debate class. We need to talk about it. That's how we heal. And I had a child uh, that insisted that they were all crisis actors, that no child had died, that – and I was infuriated, you know, because, like, I, 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 it felt so raw and so real and – and it's at that moment, right, where I was like, wow, I need to figure out a way to engage with students that don't share the reality that I share, you know? Like, and, and I, <laughs> if you got an answer to that, I'm all ears because I have no freaking clue, you know? Same. I, God, that is infuriating. <laughs> oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Uh, well, it, like, so here's the thing, right? Uh I found really interesting today. There are a couple of, like I think both you and I live uh, way too much on Twitter, uh, but <laughs> it's addictive and it's what I do and you know whatever. But I saw this tweet today, which was fascinating and 100 percent true. It was like if you look at most of the people that broke into the Capitol, they're all taking selfies, right? They're all positioning themselves as uh, this kind of um, Instagram famous, right? This this. Uh, proprietor of images and information. And I think some of the answer pertains to that. I'm not sure how, but I think that is an important element because that's how these people have gained so much power, I think. Right. This is what furthers the movement, right? When they can post their selfie with their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk and say, look at how awesome this is. This too could be you. And there are a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, I want that to be me, too. Yeah. 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 Maybe I'll go to that rally next time and <laughs> grab me a piece of that Nancy Pelosi <laughs> Right. Sign, Maybe you know, I can also steal the podium. Like, I'm just mm – -hmm. it, it's something that you and I, I think, will just never understand. We just won't be able to get there. We won't be able to try to put ourselves into that mindset. I think a lot of my anger, though, just comes from – the other people in our lives who are complicit in things like this, who the people who, you know, one of the 70 million people who voted for Trump two months ago, I don't think they want to 
Okay, let me back up. I talked to another teacher this morning about, you should know this, okay? Anytime something like this happens, a bunch of teachers in the building will come to my room like, hey, Jess, I'm just trying to check on you. Okay, that happens all the time. And I and I appreciate it. You know, I appreciate that people are looking out for me and they understand that I'm maybe having a different experience than they are because I'm a black woman. So anyway, so of course that happens this morning. I've, I've had several student, or teachers come in to check. And one of them we were talking about it. And she's like, Jess, I just don't get it and all of this. And I said, you know, a lot of people in our lives, like just sort of the everyday people that we encounter are in denial about things like this, because if they accept what's actually happening, then they also have to accept their role in it. And it is very, very difficult for people to say I was wrong and a choice that I made led to a lot of really bad things happening. It's incredibly mm-hmm. difficult for us as humans to do that. And so um, that's that's what a lot of this is. I mean, I'm thinking about people I know who voted for Trump who are still, still will say this was the right choice. Oh, oh, uh, undoubtedly. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I might go far enough to say, I bet most of them have not changed their mind. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and what happened yesterday is... I, I don't know. They, it, it, it's not enough, and, and that should tell us, right? That should tell us a very important thing about that movement and in, in those folks. Which is, I think, we spent the last four years um, being like, well, "Shit, maybe this will be enough." You know? <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> Every right. time something like, new happens, we're like, "This is it. This is the time right. where people are going to realize how awful this is," and it's still just like, eh, "No." Yeah, yeah. So, like, I don't think there is a reality, right? Because I, I think what theoretically would happen, right, is uh, Trump and, and his folks would swarm the Capitol, you know, in, in their minds that would overturn the the election and Trump would win a second term. He, those people, the people that still voted for him, would not think that was bad. They they would not exactly uh, think that was the death of democracy. And then – when they start rounding up folks that have uh, podcasts that teach them sort of liberation education, <laughs> they'd be like, oh, man, that's kind of weird. That kinda <laughs> sucks. It still wouldn't be enough. Right, you exactly. Know? Like, <laughs> uh, it reminds me of a book uh, I read way back in high school called uh, Perpetrators, Victims, Bystanders uh, of the Holocaust. Right, And it oh, broke the book yeah. into those three subgroups. And – the largest subgroup, the largest uh, you know section of that, were for bystanders. For sure, because uh, most people uh, just like to get up and go to work and go to McDonald's and you know. There are the people who soccer. say like, "I don't pay attention to politics or whatever," as if like I mean, I cannot imagine that level of privilege, just being able to ignore those things. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think the trick is how to engage those people. Uh, in an uh, environment like a classroom. And I, right. <laughs> sometimes we have answers. Uh, I think this is going to be one of those times we don't have shit for answers. So Yes. So I, was, so I posted something yesterday that said something along the lines of the individuals who are in the Capitol right now are the same people who called Colin Kaepernick a traitor and disrespectful for kneeling during the national anthem. And that's all I put, but you know, my commentary on that is there is a level of hypocrisy here that is just insurmountable. I mean, there is no way to sort of 
help these people understand how these two things are associated and how wrong they are. But it also made me remember that as this Colin Kaepernick thing was really gaining momentum, I had my students read an article about it and then do sort of like a classroom debate. We call it philosophical chairs. So we read an article about him kneeling during the national anthem and how it got started. And um, I think it was the Marine who talked him into kneeling during the anthem. And, you know, in an English class, we're reading things and then we sort of form our opinions based on what we've read. So we this was actually the start of sort of a Black History Month thing that I did. This was like the first article we read. So we do this, we have the philosophical chairs, the students do great, they have great civil discourse talking about what this means. But when I thought about this, I thought I would love to take that same group of students and do something similar with what happened yesterday. Because what I want is those students who said, this was completely disrespectful, nobody should ever kneel during the national anthem, this is about patriotism and national pride and all of that. Like, where do you stand in this situation is what I want to ask. And of course, those students are now, you know, like 20, 21, 22 years old. Um, they're not here anymore. But I, I wish I could kind of take that experience from several years ago and pair it with this one and say, OK, let's talk about how you formed your opinion on this and how you're forming your opinion on what happened yesterday. Um so I don't I mean, it's hard because that's not something I can do. But that's what I think about when I think about addressing things like this with my students. Yeah, I, I think I might even go uh, a step farther. OK, I would love to do that with the classroom. I think that's brilliant and great. And uh, I probably at least in some context what a lot of us have planned for today. Anyways, I would love to do that with the faculty. Absolutely. Because that was percent. I, I think we would find, um, you know, members in the building that uh, might have opinions that are fundamentally different. And my argument will be, and I'm probably alone in this, right? But we function better as a building. We would function uh, better as providers of education for our students if we would do a little more of that discourse. If we would you know, present ourselves as our true selves. And that should include your political stance or your absence of political stance, right? And and justify that, right? And have that conversation. And I've done that on an individual basis, but I don't think, I, you know, we have not done that as a, you know, a group of faculty members. And if we really want to be advocates for our diverse students, we need to do that first. Absolutely. And I think that some of this came up a little bit. I don't know if you're not from Missouri, you may not know this, but federally students are not required to say the Pledge of Allegiance at school. But our state of Missouri says this is the law and students have to say the Pledge of Allegiance at school. So that's something required of us at school. And when our principal kind of sat us down and told us this, I mean, you can see and hear the people who were like, yes, you should say the Pledge of Allegiance. This is about America and how great America is and all of that. And I, you know, you have to, you know, like there are people, there are teachers in their classrooms, like pushing students to stand up and say the pledge, which I would argue is like a power issue as opposed to like mm -hmm. a national pride issue. Um, but 
I mean, that's, I mean, I'm thinking about those conversations and this was probably six or seven years ago, but I'm thinking about those conversations and what that looks like now. You know, if you're saying, you know, your 14 year old student has to stand up every single day and say the Pledge of Allegiance because I don't, I don't even Cause. know what the reasoning is because I don't, <laughs> I don't agree yeah. with that. But, um, but then, you know, maybe not want to talk to them about how terrible things were yesterday. I mean, I, you know what I mean? I just don't know. Yeah how we have a conversation with our fellow teachers who I think are not interested in having those conversations with people who disagree with them. Yeah, I think are, are fundamentally uncomfortable, right? Yes. Um, yeah, I think that is that is really, really interesting. To talk about the Pledge of Allegiance for a moment. Um, last year, uh, I taught uh, a class it was predominantly African-American and, uh, you know, theoretically we're supposed to stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance. If I had students that did not want to do that, uh, I let them stay seated, right? Like I think the Supreme Court's been very clear about that. Um, I'm also not willing to pick that battle, <laughs> you know? Like we, we have so many uh, different times that we can pick battles. I'm certainly not uh, going to make that one of them. And I think that is one example of where some of our teachers that um, maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna use the term conservative. I really sometimes I just mean old school, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. right? So maybe small c conservative uh, are much more comfortable in an environment that still centers them um, as opposed to. Uh, as opposed to being student-centered. Yes. Maybe, sort of? Yes. I don't know. I absolutely uh, agree with that. But those same people are also the ones that, because I've, I've got friends all over the building, right? Uh, some are conservative, some are not, some whatever, but they're the ones that are the very first ones to be like, agree to disagree. <laughs> like, okay. Right. Okay. Uh, now, now what? You know, right. like, I appreciate. I, I appreciate step? that. Because yeah. Cause, well, and I because the agree to disagree thing is working for some of us, but not the rest. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and if if that same mentality is taken into the classroom, right? I don't think that serves the students well either. Like sometimes, yes, we can disagree in a civil fashion but agree to disagree is not an engagement exactly right? it is a deflection of that so like let us chat let's figure that out and i i do think that our our politics have become very polarized our classrooms have become very polarized and it's our job to try to deflate some of that or engage with it at the very least and letting it just hang out there ain't ain't, ain't doing it you know that is not the solution at all Mm -mm. But I also think it's, I mean, it's interesting for you to say that some of the teachers here just want to make sure things are still centered on them, you know, how they were four years ago, as opposed to student centered. And a lot of that is just getting out of the comfort zone. Um, yeah. I, I'm thinking totally. about, you know, sort of bracing myself and prepping myself for the students who are going to disagree with me. 
And I realized that there are a lot of teachers who don't want to give their students that opportunity. If they say, if they just completely shut things down and there's no one, there's no space for the student to disagree with them or put throw their beliefs back in their face or whatever it is, then that's okay. They get to stay inside that comfort zone. Um, and yeah. it's hard. It is, it is hard. I don't like getting out of my comfort zone. I don't like when the MAGA student tries to throw things at me, but... Again, it, it's not helping anybody if we don't allow them to voice those things. Yeah, and it is uh, something that you said earlier. It's entirely about power, right? Yes. Um, I fundamentally believe in an educational philosophy that empowers students. Okay, So that means in the classroom, I, one of the first things I tell them, granted it's a debate class, so it lends itself to that, I want you to disagree with me. Right. If I say something that you just fundamentally disagree with or you think you have evidence against or whatever, you raise your hand. Let's let's do it. Right. Because that's what I want. I think that 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 goes to the heart of the the way that you think of your self-image as a teacher. Right. And I've always I don't know. I'm the kind of grumpy old Socratic guy that is going to ask you questions until you're sick of being in the classroom, which I'm OK with. Uh <laughs> Not as like the the lecturer, like the all empowering imparter of knowledge. And I think how we see ourselves in the classroom is really, really important to this problem. That is the biggest thing that I think we are not going to be able to overcome. I hate to say that and it feels really defeatist, but I, I'm thinking about some very specific teachers in our building who are not going to let go of that, who are not going to let go of that, I hold the power in this classroom. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to help move that along. I think you and I both kind of set up a sort of, uh, I think we open the door to, like you said, sort of that disagreement. And for me, it's not so much like, here, let me tell you kind of my thought on this, and then you can disagree with me. But I more so want them to disagree with each other, right? Like, these are your peers, and I want you guys to be able to have these conversations that I think I don't get to have with a lot of my peers, right? Like, I think there are a lot of people who I would consider like friendly associates here at school who don't want to engage in those things with me. Um, because it's hard they haven't had any practice and they're worried yeah. about the outcome and so they just don't they just choose not to engage yeah and and i do ah, that worried about the outcome thing is really fascinating and really important um i do think there are um a subset of our students uh that may disagree with us politically and part of the reason they have reticence to discuss that stuff is because they have either seen in the media or been told at home or, you know, whatever it is, that if they discuss that, then they will get in trouble, mm -hmm. right? Like they'll – and I think that's incumbent on us as the adults in the room, short of somebody using a racial epithet or something like that, but is providing a space for them to present those arguments – not in a position where they won't be contradicted or disagreed with, but where the very utterance of the argument isn't an indictment, right? And 
I that, again, that's one of those things that I I continually struggle with, right? Because at what point do we decide this argument is, you know, an, an epistemological threat to my existence, right, or whatever it is, and and how do I discern that line? And sometimes I'm better at it than I am other days, and I, <laughs> right. I don't know. Every day is not perfect for me either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully I get every year goes by, I get a little bit better, but. I, yeah, I don't know, but I do think that is that is part of the problem is some of our, you know, I'm going to say more conservative students, but certainly I could have an anarchist, you know, or whatever, right, that uh, may have the same problem. But they're like, dude, if I say this thing, the teacher is going to jump down my throat. These kids are going to jump down my throat. So I'm just going to quietly sit here and seethe. And I am that ain't good. That's never good. I really hope that I have created an atmosphere in my classroom where my students know that if they say something I disagree with, I'm not, a lot of times I'm just going to be silent because I, again, I like to let them talk, but I, I hope they realize, you know, I can say this and Mrs. Greider's not going to yell at me or try to make me look like an idiot in front of my peers or whatever, because I think that's the other thing that really scares our students. They have that one experience where a teacher tries to make them look dumb in front of their Oof. peers. Um, for something that they say, something they believe, and then it totally shuts them up for the rest of their schooling, which I think is awful. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I just I don't have the answers right now. I mean, this is this is a good discussion, but how do we fix it? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I I think maybe you just highlighted something that is part of the solution, which is, uh, uh, what what is her name? Is it Brene Brown? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. She has this really brilliant kind of 15 minute thing that I've seen on YouTube where she talks about uh, teachers and parents using shame as a, as a disciplinary tool. Right. And that's why I've always in the back of my mind been like, okay, am I using shame to teach this lesson? And if I am, then I need to figure out a different way to do it. Right. So I think it's incumbent on us. If we see uh, an argument or we see a thing, right from a student in the classroom, not to shame that student, but you know, to try to figure out a way to approach that argument where that doesn't happen. But that being said, we also need to be really conscious that a child's statement isn't passively shaming another set exactly. of students as a result of that. Yes. And that is a really difficult balancing act, you know? Yes, uh, that that is really hard. And I think that Again, I hope this is something I do a good job of. Um, I could probably improve it in the future, but I hope that I set enough norms during our class discussions that students will try to stay away from that, that they realize that being respectful to each other is the biggest thing we can do when we disagree or when we're angry with each other. Um, I hope that I'm imparting that on them. So another area that I think bears discussion regarding this you know the the insurrection lesson here on the the hybrid model like i think the single biggest impact of the last 24 hours when it comes to because at the end of the day like 93 senators voted to affirm our democracy right and seven of them uh voted to um I don't know, decide the election on their own, including one of our own here, uh, Josh Hawley, who yes. we should all be proud of. Um, that was very tongue-in-cheek. But 
what happened was the president tweeted all afternoon, like, you know, be safe, don't be violent. Also, I still won the election, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was not helpful to the point that Twitter suspended his account for 12 hours and Facebook for 24. And I think it is really important to discuss how we approach social media um, from an education perspective, but also how our students are using that to create and convey meaning amongst one another, if that makes sense. Yes. So um, I have a lot of thoughts on educators using social media, but I will try to be succinct here um, and keep it (laughs) relevant to what we're talking about here, which is, um, yes, I'm a teacher. However, I'm also a woman, a mother, a wife, a friend, and there are things on my social media that maybe won't align with what I do in the classroom. And I think that there are some, there are people on two sides of this, right? Like there are some people who are saying you're a teacher, so you should adhere to different standards and you shouldn't post certain things on social media. And then there's the other side, which I just, just described, which is like, I'm more than a teacher. So, um, there are students who follow me sort of in like open places, like my Twitter, my Instagram are not private. So there are students now, I don't ever engage with them. I don't ever follow them, but they can see things that I post. And I think that that sometimes creates, I don't know, it strengthens some relationships and it um, harms others, I think. But also, I don't believe in censoring myself on social media because I'm a teacher. So, uh, you know, I posted a whole lot of things yesterday. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and, uh, and the other thing I'll say is, you know, there are also school board members who follow me on social media and some of our administrators here in our building and around the district who follow me on social media. Um, and I just, I'm never, ever conscious of that when I post things. Um, again, <laughs> just because, you know, I, I get to be my own person outside of school. So, um I think one of the things that I want to point out is I'm okay. Yes, it's great that Twitter finally suspended Trump's account, but you're like five years too late. So I'm not like super (laughs) excited about that because I'm like, you know, this has been going on for years and years and years. And now now's the time that, you know, I feel like there could have been some steps prior to this. Um, So there's that. And then I think that. It's really difficult for our students to discern what they're seeing on social media. Sorry, I'm really all over the place with the social media thing. But um, no, you're good. You know, I am thinking about some of our colleagues, Um, some of our colleagues. One of our colleagues in particular posted some things this summer about, you know, it being okay to kill protesters. So I'm thinking about some of our students who probably follow that person. And and I don't know when you're if you're 15 years old, it's hard to figure out what's right and what's not, I think. Yeah. No, I think, uh, yeah, I think generally speaking, the social media thing, I'm, I'm in the same boat that you are, uh, which is I don't really censor myself on social media. Um, I did do this thing maybe a decade ago. Uh, I would always get an influx of parents who would friend me on Facebook, right? And I felt this uh, obligation maybe a decade ago to friend them back, right, and to to say okay, mm-hmm. right. Uh, 
And then I changed my mind. I was like, yeah, I nah, this is my own personal space. Um, <laughs> if I know them outside of school, maybe. But, yeah, I, this is just going to make me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to do that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a weird thing. But I think it is really important to uh, approach our classrooms and, you know, to, to think about social media in terms of a way that, influences knowledge creation, disseminates knowledge, you know, and that kind of stuff, and, and not pretend like it doesn't exist. And, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't have a wonderful answer or any of that when it comes to board members and administrators and that kind of stuff. I will say, uh, I'm like you, I post a lot. I am perpetually online <laughs> uh, because of, you know, the, the film critic stuff and then you know, with the teacher stuff and the news stuff, I just feel like I'm there all the time. And thus I post a lot. And I've never had an administrator, I've never had a board member that has been like, don't do that, right? And I I can appreciate that, you know? At the end of the day, they're giving me that space to do what I to do what I want outside of that. Have you ever felt pressured to take something down or I have not. No one has ever uh, you know, batted an eye, really. And again, I think a lot of that has to do with if somebody were going to talk to me about it, then that would open up a conversation that they don't want to have with me. So they just choose to ignore it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and at least in, in this context. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> if, in, if that in, discussion in is... the school context. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if, if that discussion leads to uh, somebody telling me that, like, Five o'clock on a Saturday, I can't tweet about, you know, uh, people taking over the Capitol or whatever. You know, like, that's too much. (laughs) Maybe I'm glad no – yeah, maybe I'm glad nobody's (laughs) had that conversation with me. I'm like, okay, yeah. I mean, I definitely – I mean, I'm going to drop the F-bomb here, but I I tweeted last night, fuck Josh Hawley, and I'm not taking that down. (laughs) No, right? And the thing is, what I have seen, I have seen uh, students – former students, uh, certainly politicians that look for that kind of stuff. And then what they do is, right, like Jessica Malone at 5 o'clock on a Thursday night (laughs) sees Josh Hawley saying the election was fraudulent and says, fuck Josh Hawley. And then Josh Hawley is like, hey, at, uh, you know, such and such high school, did you know one of your teachers is doing this (laughs) thing, you know? It's like students love, like former students love to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, like, it happened to me once. And, like, the first time, like, uh, that person tagged the school district, the superintendent, my principal. And, like, it was like it was like a Saturday afternoon that it all went. And I was, like, I was sweating buckets. I was, like, oh, man, what am I going to have when I come into work on Monday? Right. And, like, it was, like, nothing. Yeah, nobody said you know? anything. Right. And I was, like, okay, all right, that's cool. Uh, but also, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's very scary. I did not like it. Uh, <laughs> has that stopped me or changed my behavior? No. But, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't um, know. It is It is what it is. So, well, know? but speaking of that, here's something I thought that was really interesting on Twitter. So one of my uh, teacher friends teaches in a school district. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's actually in DC or just outside of it, but they are on a delay today because of everything that happened yesterday. Course, the curfew yeah. ended this morning, but um, so they're. I, I imagine it's something like 
if we have a delay for like a snow day or something, they're on a delay. And I thought this was really interesting, the message that their school district sent out. This was last night. It says, today our government embarked on a process intended to certify the will of the people of this country to elect a new president and vice president. Instead, our capital was overcome by the will of a small but privileged few who succeeded in disrupting the process with violence and chaos. This afternoon, white mobs moved through police barricades unimpeded as they climbed, defaced, and denigrated the Capitol building to bring our democratic process to a halt. These images stand in stark contrast to other recent events in our city and our country. They remind us with incisive clarity that white men and women can move freely, even in unlawful and violent ways, while black men and women cannot sleep, drive, run, or breathe with a guarantee of safety. We recognize the impact of today's unprecedented insurrection and visible racism on our community's sense of safety and well-being. We are also mindful of the citywide curfew this evening and the possibility of violence spilling beyond the Capitol and into our neighborhoods. And then it goes on to say, like, to ensure that our students and staff are safe, here's what we're going to do. But I thought that was impressive that a school district would put something like that out. Um, and I mean, very, very powerful, incredibly powerful. Well, and, and I think speaks to two things. Number one, one of the outcomes of this may, may be probably not, but I can dream would be uh, DC statehood, right? Because part, yes. yes. part of the, the reason things got as bad as they did is because DC is not a state, yes. right? So the governor can't call in the National Guard, it's dependent on the president who waited four and a half hours to call in the guard, you right. know, like so. Maybe that could be a thing that that we could come out of all of this. But I think it really, really speaks to that idea that I don't know our white kids our, our white kids can get away with more. They just can, right? And uh, I'm keenly aware of that with my own really large, really loud thirteen-year-old. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and. I, so I, I have a, a couple of students um, of color that I, I'm still very close to. And, you know, they were kind of some of my first students. And so now they have children of their own. And I was uh, talking to one of them about having a son, right? His son is now like seven or eight. And I, it is just a fundamentally different conversation. And it breaks my heart. I can't imagine, you know, like life is hard enough when you couple that with the fact that, you know, uh, you gotta, you gotta tell your son like, don't, don't get pulled over. And if you do, you need to fear for your life. And you know, like I just, I don't know. Jack, my oldest, is is just really loud and mm-hmm. sometimes obnoxious and uh, full of energy and life. And the thing that would crush my soul the most would be to have to like try to beat that out of him. Yes, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, it's a scary thing, and um, I, I think I'm in a really unique position because, uh, if you don't know, my husband is white and we have a son, and I, you know, not knowing what he was going to look like before he got here, I remember having those <laughs> conversations with my husband about, you know, we're going to have a black son, and here's what that means, and um, my my son is, I, I really hate this term, but I can't really think of anything better to use he's very white presenting if you didn't know that he had a black mother it's not something that you would assume about him he is 
blonde, fine hair, very pale skin. Um, And so now, like, our conversations are different, right? Just, like, you know, claiming his blackness and what that means, you know, when people see him and, like, he's going to be in this, like, ethnically ambiguous category. And and that's so different from my experience growing up with a brother and cousins and uncles and, um, you know, so it's weird. Like, as a black mom to a son who maybe doesn't look black, it's a different conversation even than, you know, <laughs> you have with your son yeah. or your students right. have with theirs. And, um, you know, I, I hope that I can kind of show him sort of where he falls in line in all of this, but I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it probably doesn't look like your child, regardless of how they present, um, <laughs> would have like a fur coat, uh, posing on the uh, dais of the Senate, you know? <laughs> like, like, God, I hope we're... not. Like, I just, I cannot imagine, <laughs> like, no. being like, that no. mother who's seeing her son. I just, I... Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but maybe now, his mom is like, yes, way to go. <laughs> Thank goodness you stormed into the Senate floor. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I think it... It also harkens back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is like the fact that uh, I think both you and I participated in a number of Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, and like the police presence was heavier, um, the use of police was heavier. It felt very much more militarized than what we saw yesterday, and like uh, so, admittedly. Uh, my new social media fascination is TikTok, right? So this morning as I was uh, scrolling through uh, my For You videos, right, I saw two or three in a row of, uh, you know, like the, the premise was Capitol Police to uh, the coup participants, right? And it was like, don't come in. No, you can't come in. Oh, stop. You know, like they were all like that, right? And, and right. they cracked me up, but it, like... I do think that's the power of a one-minute video is, like, you can convey a whole lot of information in a funny, satirical way, like, with that. And that is what is amazing is there there were so many political pundits and people yesterday that were like, how did this happen? And we're like, are you for real? Right. <laughs> you know. Yes. What have we been doing? Yeah, and, and I do think that the connection between white supremacy and, and police officers certainly has something to do with it. Yes, and uh, the thing that doesn't surprise me but still angers me wholeheartedly is this idea of, well, the police didn't shoot them with rubber bullets or disperse their tear gas because they weren't being violent like the BLM protesters, right? Like, there's just such a disconnect there. Uh, And I'm not sure. I don't know if it's like a Fox News thing or, again, just wanting to be in denial because then you'd have to accept your role in what's happening here. Uh, But I I saw a lot of that in response. And um, also, speaking of, like, satirical things and sort of tongue-in-cheek, a tweet that I thought was kind of interesting yesterday was, this is a really strange way to find out that cops know how to not use deadly force. Yeah. And then Uh. a reply to that was, it's amazing how a well-publicized gathering of people known to be big fans of firearms would be met with such a lean police contingent. Mm. 
Like, and again, oh. it's like not surprising. There are so many of us who were not surprised. Like, yes, this is it. And then, of course, there are like the memes of, you know, like the two Spider-Mans looking at themselves and one's got like yeah, the police yeah. hat and the other one's got the Ku Klux Klan hat on. And, yeah. um, you know, like you can't be in two places at once. I, it just things like that that are, I realize are like kind of making light of the situation, but also not. Like, it's also true yeah. that... I mean, if you look at the history of police in our country, it was started as um, a racist organization. The police in America were started to return runaway slaves to their owners. I mean, that's why there's a police force in America. And it has not really changed, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, I guess, uh, morphed into other things, but the basis is still there. Well, and and one of the things that was... Um, on our script for <laughs> the uh, conversation we were going to have. Uh, in Missouri, there was, uh, and I'll try to link to it in the show notes here, um, an article out of somewhere in the uh, middle of Missouri, so rural Missouri. They sent the SRO to the home of a student to discuss their attendance and their grades. And there was a big hullabaloo about it. And this is probably its own episode, but... I think you and I are both very interested in the the role of policing because we have police in our building mm-hmm. and and they do play a role um, in in things like the school to prison pipeline and that kind of stuff and I'm really curious to I don't know pick your brain about what you see is that interaction and that role and how that functions. <sighs> Much, much longer conversation. This is a longer conversation. And I will say it changes with which police officer is Mm -hmm. in our building. Yes, I Uh, agree. It is. uh, It's not the same from officer to officer. And uh, yeah, I don't I'm not sure what I can say about this. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, uh, and that's the bottom line. We we have to work with people. So we're not going to, you know, we're not going to say anything specific. But yeah, like. So when I first started teaching, I taught um, down in the the inner city, right? I, I taught at Ruskin High School, which is um, a rougher area town. Just this. Um, still had great kids. Still had kids I loved. But the SRO there, who you would think uh, because uh, there were yeah, – he was a white guy, and they were predominantly African-American students. I, I really found his relationship – to be the most positive that I have seen in my 17 years of teaching. Like, uh, he engaged with students. He knew their names. He oftentimes knew their backstory. Uh, he was a fount of information if I was having difficulty with a student, but never like in a, in a, in a authority perspective, just like, well, here's, here's what's going on, you know, and did a fantastic job of building relationships with those kids. So I think that, uh, the same thing that we should be expecting from our teachers, we should expect from our police officers, which is that building relationship piece. Like that's the first thing. If you're going to be in the school building, if you're going to be here for our students and we want to keep our students centered, that's got to be a priority. Um, I would say that is that has happened at varying degrees since I've been here. So this is, Um, If we include my student teaching, this is my 12th year in the building. And 
it has happened sometimes and other times it has just been like a blatant disregard for our students and um you know you have to question the intentions right like what are your intentions of being here if it's not to engage with students if it's not to help them understand your role and want them to see you in a positive light want them to see police officers in general in a positive light um i'm trying to be careful here (laughs) you know what i'm saying i'm not sure (laughs) so i have two things that we can kind of end with here and the first one again is about you know if you're going to teach this episode in your classroom. So um, maybe not so much us teaching it as like a specific event, like a social studies teacher would, um, but I, I do think it's important for all of us to talk about it. And one of the things that someone pointed out is um, we need to use very specific terms and it's not okay to sort of like sugarcoat or beat around the bush. Like we have to say things like, white supremacy. And we have to talk about who is complicit in certain events. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest things. We have to be really explicit about what happened and why and how it happened. Um, So that's, and including, and this is the other thing that I kept posting about yesterday is there were already white supremacists in that building before the others broke in. So we got to talk about them as well. So that's important. Um, and then sort of the other thing that's kind of funny in a very English teachery way, um, if you've been sort of in the literary world for a while, you know that the young adult genre um, became just saturated with dystopian novels a handful of years ago. Um, and we sort of make jokes about like dystopia and what that looks like. But um, uh, just a funny tweet. It says, in 2016, it was, okay, it's only four years. How, how bad could it be? And now in 2021, the armed insurrectionists storming the Capitol, or are the armed insurrectionists storming the Capitol aware that there is a plague ravaging the land? So just sort of a funny, like, uh, we've seen this. We've seen this in English before. <laughs>